it's nice to be here. I am Ulutayo Adeshino. I teach history at the University of Ibadan, Nigeria. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now, let's get started with this episode. My special focus within the historical discipline is actually the history of development, as well as the economic history of West Africa. Um, uh, Much more recently, uh, people have been uh, agitated as to the continued importance of history in this scheme. But we tell people that history is actually not all about the rise and fall of empires or the uh, death of one king and the ascension of another. Rather, uh, it is much more now about the totality of human experience. Uh, You want to speak about development, you want to speak about architectural issues, you want to speak about religion, uh, human relations, all sorts of things that you find within the human community is what history deals with. And so um, now you have diverse um, subspecialties in history. Uh, You have military history, you have social history, you have uh, women's history and gender, uh, you have diplomatic, have economic and social history. And so it's no longer about the rise and fall of empires, rather, It's about understanding how man uh, within society has used resources uh, to actually help society to make sense of uh, the the trajectories of human growth and development. Thank you so much, Professor uh, Adesina. Um, Let's take it uh, from the basis. Can you give us a background of development? When people say development, what are are they actually referring to? And of course, within the context of Africa and West Africa and Nigeria. In contemporary times, uh, development has been seen from the prism of uh, Western definition of, of, uh, of development, which talks about uh, GDP, GMP, uh, industrialization, uh, growth. But um, These parameters might not be true of all societies and of all peoples. Um, If you have read the work of Amartya Sen, the um, Indian economist, uh, you will see uh, him describing uh, development as people uh, rather than things. Uh, Now we talk more about infrastructure, roads, housing, et cetera, but it's much more about people. Uh, How well have we gone on to make better humans out of the people that we have in in So when you build bridges, uh, you construct houses, and you don't build the people, then of course we are are the poorer for it. So um, within the Western construct, uh, development has to do with uh, much more about economic growth, uh, 
the GDP, the industries, industrialization. But that is different from the African construct of development, even though um, you have what you call the dominant analysis. Uh, the dominant analysis has come about because there are gatekeepers. And it is these gatekeepers who determine the direction of thought. You know, and so, but, but, but for Africans, it's the emphasis, just like the Indian economist I mentioned earlier said, uh, the emphasis here is more on people. Um, when you develop the people, and when people are happy, they are much more developed than people who live in high-rise buildings, uh, who eat three times a day, but are not that happy. So the construct of development in Africa, uh, or in West Africa more specifically, is about that sense of community, support systems that have gone on to shape human society. Although unfortunately, the African system has also now succumbed to the Western paradigm, uh, which has also created a kind of distortion uh, afflicting West Africa now. And that's why we now have problems of poverty, problems of suicides, problems of lack of jobs. These were issues that society could deal with um, very well in the past, because um, from the traditional systems, we had created support systems uh, that didn't uh, give room for vagrancy, that didn't give room for poverty, that didn't give room for loneliness. This way I think that created certain substructures that gave rise to superstructures in African society that ultimately led to the development of what you call that sense of community. Unfortunately, that sense of community is atrophied now because now uh, families and friends are becoming used to um, individualism. Individualism is not an African concept. You, you, you only get that from, from the Western. That is, that is very important. Um, and like you said before, it is important to study history and history, they don't just uh, date and figures. They help us to understand where we are coming from. They help us to understand everything, our position in the world, how we get to where we are today. So it is very strange, in fact, that Nigeria at the point had to remove history from the curriculum. I don't know how they managed to convince the people. Anyway, as a historian, as a, as a lecturer of history, what did you see as a conviction as to why that was even accepted uh, to start with? I know this is a digression, but it helped because it's so important from my understanding of history. So what happened there? Well, there have been several attempts to remove history from the curriculum because uh, here, history was seen as one of the useless disciplines. Uh, history, sociology, anthropology. Um, I, I, I've already told you about 
uh, the dominant uh, ideology, the dominant analysis of seeing society within the prism of industrialization. So any society uh, that does not move in the direction of science and industry is uh, not a modern society, so to speak. And so um, our governments button into that idea. And the first attempt to remove history uh, physically from the curriculum actually began around 1982 under the administration of uh, Alagishe Ushagari. Uh, but that decision fell through that time. And it was not until 1987 that a new attempt was made under the regime of uh, General Ibrahim Babangida. That was the period when we were trying to introduce intro tech, uh, you know, science and tech into the curriculum. And so people uh, began to buy into the idea of um, removing history because, well, is it not about the rise and fall of empires? Uh, historians themselves did not help matters because uh, the way they used to emphasis on dates and obscure names actually um, gave Philip to, to that decision. And so when it was removed uh, around 1987, and it was replaced with social studies. For people, that made sense because social studies was um, um, uh, easily identifiable with what was going on in society. Uh, it was softer. It was uh, less um, cumbersome than history. History that you had to remember so many dates, so many names, so many places. So uh, society itself welcomed uh, the introduction of social studies. But uh, as they have now discovered, uh, social studies is not the same thing as history. Um, the emphasis on the dates in history uh, actually uh, obviated the didactic nature of that discipline. What can you learn from the past? That's the emphasis. But the teachers of your actually miss the point by ensuring that they um, uh, laid emphasis on oh, the dates, the, 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 the important people in society. Uh, history would have to take on board people who actually were also at the grassroots level, the building blocks of society. And so because of this, um, uh, people did not identify with that discipline because as far as they were concerned, it was obscure. So it was removed successfully. Yes, I was talking about um, uh, neoliberalism and uh, the fact that you must um, uh, study a professional course uh, like law, um, like accounting to make it in society, like engineering. And so the focus of society shifted from morals, from values, from ideals to money. And that began to give a new, a new orientation to the younger generation. And uh, now we have seen the effects of uh, shifting 
they focus away from moral ideals. Uh, because what our administrators and government people, policymakers forgot was that it's not every cost, it's not every that might be tilted towards business. There are disciplines designed specifically to help society to find its direction in the challenges that we face as humans. And history is one of those subjects. Um, you may not become a businessman with history, although there's nothing that stops you from reading history and not developing a business sense. Nothing, nothing says that. Because the discipline itself provides opportunity for you to engage in inductive and deductive reasoning uh, allows you to understand society, allows you to understand the need for engaging in profitable ventures. And that's why I defined history initially as the totality of human experience. Uh, if you look at um, the Trans-Saharan trade, for instance, that went on for over a thousand years, you will understand what I'm talking about. These people didn't study MBA, they didn't study accounting, and yet they held on to uh, uh, a very important economic venture, uh, marketing strategies, and for over a thousand years, it went unsuccessfully. So these are the kind of things you begin to learn from history that makes it very important for us to use history as a tool of analysis to understand how to make it in life. Thank you very much for that. Uh, that in itself is a rabbit hole, but anyway, we're not going to enter there because I find it um, in a part is very provoking as to why uh, he, there, could, there could be a justification for removing history in the curriculum, especially for the fact that we are not talking of something of 2,000 years ago, because now all the nations have been formed. There will be a disinteraction. So when you make certain decisions, you need to compare also with some other places that are existing in the world, like maybe the United Kingdom, which of course have even colonized Nigeria. Uh, the question, the simple question would be, in the United Kingdom, are they teaching them about history? Maybe ask yourself, like uh, in the United States, for example, are people learning about their history or in Germany or in France? You know, because it has become impossible for any nation to live in isolation. So you can't just uh, invent things that doesn't have, uh, that, 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 is not, that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. You are go it's going to be very challenging. Also because even when we said that uh, we needed to teach people about um, tech and the rest of it, I don't really know how much we really went in details in that. If there was a clear objective of what the people really wanted to get there, a good example would be that, okay, the Nigerian government realized that they needed to build the infrastructure for this reason that they don't need to go and start looking at uh, a fruitless effort like understanding the history, no? if that is how they wanted to put it. So in this sense now, the objective of teaching people about technology is because they wanted to invest in it. They wanted to teach people on how to build maybe the first Nigeria automobile. For this reason, this is what they wanted. So I really do not see uh, what the what was the objective for teaching history so that they can get a, a more 
practical evidence of what they wanted to study. Anyway, let's leave that apart. Let's look at development. Can you be specific to me or what is actually the model of African type of uh, development? What are we referencing as, uh, as our own model of development? So that it might not be completely different from the Western style, but at least we can say this is what we are, this is our reference, our frame of reference in terms of what we can describe as our African development. This help me. Well, um, for, for Africans, um, we have imbibed too many of the foreign schemes, uh, capitalism, socialism, uh, uh, mixed economy, uh, but uh, what seems to be afoot in Africa now is more of uh, neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is really not working for us. And so if you then ask us to go back to those structures created by Africans for Africans, um, it might not work very well uh, in the present times unless we also begin to disaggregate and aggregate or de-emphasize uh, the Western approach of existence. Um, look at Japan and China uh, continue to use their traditional approaches of existence uh, to make good. And that for us now is a focus uh, that will enrich our existence. And, and so um, traditionally, the social value of goods was much more important than the economic value. That is not to say that goods didn't have economic value. They did. And that was why we were able to develop. We were looking at the traditional uh, values that actually moved society. And I was talking about the, the social value of goods being much more important than the economic value of goods. Um, when you go to the market, yes, you go there, you price the goods, you haggle over the goods, and you pay the amount which talks about profit. But in capitalism, the profit motive and the profit margin are important things. But in Africa, the profit margin uh, can be marginal because you wanted to ensure societal stability, uh, human friendship, you know, and so at times you, you might even sell your goods at the level of the cost of production just to ensure that you create some kind of relationship in society. The, 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 the profit will come later. If I give you my goods at the cost of production, uh, we are creating a relationship which was the most important thing in society. And at a critical moment in that relationship, there will be what you call the payback time. 
Uh, and that's why during festivities, during burial ceremonies, it's the relationship that we have created that will ultimately help you to carry on with the cost of burial or with the cost of the wedding, because it's then people you had known over the years will come together to give you the support. So the support systems created um, through the experience of that sense of community is what Africa should be striving to go back to. Um, we are aware of the need to make money, to make profit, but at the end of the day, look at where the desire to make money, to make profit has led us. Acute corruption, money rituals, you know, um, the, the death of the extended family system. You know, these are things that are destroying the quality of life in Africa today. And while it might not be possible to go back totally to the African way of life, uh, let's take what is good from the West and then jettison the rest to ensure that our people continue to value life and relationship over things and money. That is very important now. You see, uh, in this uh, podcast, I have an episode um, that is in my language, in Esa, uh, in, um, in Edo State. So I'm beginning to talk to different people, both those who know and those who knows a lot and those who know lead you, both historians and ordinary people. I'm trying to understand what is our past. And what a lot of people are complaining about is exactly this, that we are losing our value in the expense of money. And, and this is very dangerous because now, a man I interviewed recently was saying, before there was a trust in the system, you didn't even need to arrest somebody that was very close to you because it was talking of a, a very close clan known. Because if there was a problem, there were elders to be to talk to who will help to resolve the problem, and there was justice. You didn't need to bribe them because they were working for the good of everyone. It was known how much you own that determined your state of uh, your justice. It was the fairness how it affects everybody but today this has changed the value system no but um is there even a possibility of able to revert to those value system looking at the nigeria that we have today is it is it do you see the possibility of that no the possibility is very remote because uh we have too many people as policymakers. Uh, who had bought in too much into the Western approach of doing things. And so when we talk and we suggest these things, they look at you and scoff at you and say, well, all these things are not going to look good with the IMF. They're not going to look good at, uh, with the World Bank because everything you do now, like I said, has to be scalable. Uh, the World Bank wants to see whether you have the capacity to pay back the loan you are going to take 
And the same thing with the IMF. The IMF wants to see your population. Is it a working population? Is it a population dominated by women who don't have anything to do? You know, these are issues that have become part of the GDP and the GNP that have now gone to define development. So even now, um, you know, you know, in the past, um, children uh, were the social security of, of parents, of families. So the more of them you have, the more they are able to take care of you in your old age. But now the IMF will talk about overpopulation, underpopulation, and see how uh, you have been able to create optimum population that will enable you to produce adequately. And then, of course, uh, is it an economy that is modernized? Is it an economy that can pay back the value of a loan? These are issues that have prevented Africans from living their lives. Um, for, for countries like um, like Bangladesh, for instance, yes, it's a very poor country, but we, we have been able to see how they have been able to leverage on their traditional approaches to um, establish a banking system that has connected with the people. And so it's more about the people now rather than about the global economy or how the West wants to see us. And it's been very difficult to delink because as I've said, they are the gatekeepers. They control everything. Uh, everything has to be uh, done uh, uh, the way they, 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 they see it. And that's why you have such uh, pejorative words or phrases. I, I consider it pejorative international best practices, global best practices. Uh, these were practices that we already had, that we had instituted even in our culture. And so there's nothing uh, to define them as global because they are coming from the West. Oh, you talk about corruption, talk about stealing, you talk about uh, gender relations. Uh, we, we, we had all these orientations, all these values in our culture before they came with colonialism and imperialism that began to distort our uh, worldviews. And so they caused the problem for us. Now they are castigating us for those problems that they caused. So until we begin to have Africans who understood how to leverage on our culture, our values and our traditions to begin to rebuild the fabrics of society, then so long we will continue to ape, to koto to the West, and it's not in our existence. So when you, def when you define poverty now as um, people who, who, who depend on less than a dollar a day, uh, for the world now, that's the definition that comes with the IMF and the World Bank. But of course, I may not even have one dollar a day and I will live happily because um, society has created those structures that will 
help us move along in tandem with other members of society. You know, so more or less it's about the support systems. Um, um, unfortunately, uh, the support system now, because we uh, live according to the rule books of the West, the support system now is also being weighed down. Uh, there is the wage system, the wage system, you have to go and look for a job because you have to take care of the old and your younger ones. And that has created in itself a kind of diseconomy, a, a, a malfunctioning of the entire structure, the entire process. Uh, we now have a new generation. Well, it's not new, it's only getting wider uh, that we call the the, the sandwich generation. That sandwich generation is um, laboring under a heavy load. And that's why you find uh, our younger ones trying to leave the country in search of, of better existence, um, crossing dangerously the Mediterranean to look for a better life because they belong to the sandwich generation. Uh, they must take care the, of the old ones uh, whose pensions are not coming or who have no pensions. And they must take care of the younger ones whose parents can no longer take care of them. So you in the middle are the one who has to go and look for a means of sustenance to take care of your younger brothers and sisters coming. So that sandwich generation is now spread all over the world trying to take care of the old and the younger ones. Let's let look at this uh, value system again because I think it's important. Of course, we are moving towards also the model, the the model that we are that we are using on. Because now we are saying, uh, talking of poverty, and looking at people who who are surviving or barely surviving or less on less than one dollar a day. Now, a dollar or dollar is an American currency, which they print you now, which they have control over. And our existence is now being measured based on that. But the question really is, say maybe, for example, uh, we don't have other people to depend on, we don't have the system, the IMF to depend on. You didn't mention of Babagida before. You remember, I think that was 1991, if I'm not mistaken, during the Gulf War, and during the so-called structural adjustment program. I think that was during the Babagida. Yes. The morning that IBB went... Uh, take Nigeria to low from the World Bank and the consequence, the heavy consequence of that law that Nigeria have to go and pay for. It's not the, the law itself is not the problem, but the condition of the law. That one of the conditions, if I remember uh, correctly, was the, the devaluation of the Nigerian Naira and the uh, opening up of the Nigerian economy. And uh, we are talking of production, we are talking of giving job to the people. At the time, uh, up to today, the Nigerian economy still produced very little to contribute into that economy. And the condition of that law was to open up the economy. If you have nothing to contribute to the economy, you open up the economy, you are basically committing a suicide. So if that is the situation, are yes. we going to be... Yeah, please, it's like you want to say something there. Yeah, yes, you, you, are, you are right. That was suicidal because, you know, uh, looking at the neoliberal policies adopted by the Bangida administration, you will see a large dose of contradictions. Yeah, open up your economy, uh, deregulate 
the economy, uh, the, your currency must um, be devalued. And as you are also devaluing the currency, its purchasing power becomes weaker, you know, but it was devalued to take advantage of the foreign currencies that were expected to come into your economy. But what was the level of production or productivity that would allow the foreign currency to come in? Uh, except for the oil industry, every other thing bowed to neoliberalism. Uh, we opened up our economy and cheaper goods began to flood our markets and local industries began to die. So what advantage are we then going to get from not producing anything beyond the crude oil? So it's the contradiction that ultimately uh, killed the economy. And that's up till now we have not recovered from it because it has also now uh, encouraged that sense of migration in which uh, the younger generation now began to move outside the country in search of not only good existence, but also in search of jobs. Um, we have not been able to repair the economy uh, in the aftermath of the adoption of the structural adjustment program. And only God knows how we are going to get that problem sorted out. Uh, right now, there is even the problem of electricity. So, those little, those few industries left in the economy after the destruction of the structural adjustment are now even closing shops because of, of power issues. You know? So, um, it, it's a CAC 22 situation. We, we, are, we, are in, we are in deepness. And that's why, um, if you look at the political terrain, uh, people are shopping. They are shopping for presidential candidates who can, it's all, it's, it's all about the economy. Even though uh, people would think, oh, it's uh, ethnicity, it's religion, but really deep down, it's about the economy. Uh, people want a good life. They want jobs for their children. They want the Naira in their hands to weigh more than it's weighing now. Uh, the, the, the purchasing capacity of the Naira is, is almost nil now. So um, the political economy of the country has been so badly affected that uh, if a monkey comes out now and says it has an answer to the uh, economy, people will look in its direction. You see, one time somebody said that Nigeria was heading the road of uh, Somalia. And some people say, how can you say that? Well, <laughs> Look at Nigeria, it's headed not even to the state of Somalia, but also to the state of, um, of Venezuela. In that this type of economy that have extreme wealth also create extreme mafias, extreme uh, criminals. For country to function, for a, a state, for a system to function, it doesn't have to be about just sharing, sharing. You also need to produce what you are sharing. Now, in the case of Nigeria, or maybe look at Venezuela, or the many other countries that have extreme oil, in the exception of maybe some few countries, I don't know, in some Arab countries, you don't really need the population to produce. Unlike maybe in the 70s of Nigeria, where you will need a lot of uh, product from agriculture, talking of the canopy, uh, the canopy pyramid of Grand North. 
Those pyramids of granite could not be produced by few people, from few, by few expert traders that are coming from the US or UK to extract them. You needed the population to do it, a lot of people. And you, as a government, needed to develop these people so that they can produce more for you. That is how the system has always been. Because if you continue to exploit the people, they will not work. If they do not work for you, you will not have something. And you are going to lose. Now, a system like that is how it has always functioned in the society that everybody is important. Now, the way it is in Nigeria today and in some other failed states that have a lot of resource, a lot of mono economy, okay, a lot of a lot of countries that have mono economy is that they need few expatriates to extract the oil in Nigeria. So the Nigerian government do not really need the people as it were in play. I want to put it in play words. They don't really need the population. They just need few people to extract the oil. Then that oil, they can share it, share to the state, share to the local government. But that is not what is going to bring development to Nigeria. What is going to bring development to Nigeria is where the Nigerian population is put to work. All of them will be contributing. That is how the country can be saved. So if that is a possible solution, which model are we going? Because we can see now, Looking at the era of Babagida, Zidabacha, that they have systematically, one step after the other, have been bringing down this country. Of course, uh, helping the, the Western government who are interested in that mono economy, that oil. That is what they are interested in. They're not interested in the development of the Nigerian manpower. It is the Nigerian government who should be interested in developing their manpower because if they don't, they are going to fail. Help me with the model that we should return to of our development. Well, well, we are we are conversant with the issue of the Dutch disease, uh, in which when you get um, um, resource cheaply like this, uh, everything bows to it. Uh, uh, people no longer want to work because you, you, you have income coming in cheaply, and then of course corruption festers. Um, so in most cases, it is countries that have this kind of uh, resources, such as crude oil, that suffer from lack of progress. But, but you see, we, we, we are very lucky in Nigeria because um, the people, uh, the population that people think constitutes a drag on the economy, is also still our saving grace. Um, we have a very dynamic Nigerians are very hardworking in spite of their government. Because if you look at the way the government treats us, or the way government does not meet our needs, um, anarchy should be ruling in this country. Although, yeah, it's true we are moving gradually towards it, but Nigerians are also very smart, very intelligent. But as the people are smart, so also is the political elite. Um, if our political elite uh, divert their intelligence towards positive purposes, oh, we, in the next couple of years, we'll be on the moon. But they are always very negative in their thinking, but they are also very smart. They look at the uh, barometers of society, 
what is the temperature, in which direction are we going, how do we solve some of these problems, and they come together quick. You know, it's it, yes, it's it's a rogue elite, but it's also a very smart elite. They always because yes, you think they have taken our money abroad, but they prefer living here because it is here that their existence has meaning. Uh, people flocking around them, uh, consumption. Uh, you can't be eating. Um, we both food every time. They want pandediam, they want their popoto, they want their bushmeat. So it's here that they actually find the essence for their existence. So they actually prefer being here. All the more reason they now always come together. When Nigeria is getting to the brink, they come together to say, okay, apply the brakes. And they do. The same thing with the Nigerians themselves, the common masses, they, 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 they love this country. Yes, they can send their children abroad to go and look for job or do things, but they also look forward to the children coming back. Um, the way they go out of the country is the way they also come back home during festivities, December, Leia, you know, they, 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 they love this country. And so one of the reasons why we are not likely to go the Somalia way is that in spite of our disagreements, in spite of the bitterness in society, Nigeria is lucky that Nigerians like Nigeria. It may not be love, but they like Nigeria. They want to see Nigeria making it well in the world. And so that's why we are always agitated. If, we, if, if the People don't like Nigeria. They won't be agitated about Nigeria. They won't. But we are agitated because we see in this country all the things you needed to make the country a great place. So we we, we won't give up. And I know Nigerians, I mean, I, I've met many Nigerians all over the world, you know, dreaming about home, about coming back, but they are worried about the violence, about the killings, about the economy, and that's why um, things are, 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 are really, you know, not working well for them elsewhere because you can't be making money and then back home people are unhappy. You also can't be del deliriously happy where you are because you feel concerned for what is going on at home. So we, we are just hoping that uh, the, the political elite, uh, which is the cause of this problem, yes, there are criminal elites, they are there. There are business elites, they are there. They are making their money in spite. In fact, there are business elites who will never exchange living elsewhere with living in Nigeria. Because as we speak, they make so much profit from this country and you begin to wonder, oh, in this same economy where there's no electricity, where there are no jobs, people make money. You know, all you need to do is to understand how the country works. Once you understand that, you will survive it. Now, we are talking of the model, that, the model of development. Uh, yes, 
it is true that it is the people that is actually the most powerful. They are more powerful than their government, but if they organize themselves. And I think uh, those ruling Nigeria know this. That is why they are very, very good in dividing the people in their policy of divide and rule. Of course, this is what was also used by the colonialists now, and those who came to represent them, took over from them, continue to refine that idea uh, continuously. But I'm trying to see, because we are looking at development and history, is there something that we can go back to in our history as a pre-colonial model of development that have worked? It can be within the Yoruba people, the Hausa, any part of Nigeria that we can lay hand on. This has worked because people must find a solution to their problem. Help me. Yeah, well, well, I, I will recommend that people should go and study uh, the, the South Korean model. Uh, they call it the Simul Ndong. Uh, Simul Ndong went back into society and began to study how the people, leveraging on their culture, on their values and traditions, can begin to rebuild society from the villages from the local level. So if you study similar Dong, you will discover that it is actually not too different from the model we used in the pre-colonial period. Uh, it's all about the people, it's about the culture, it's about the values of society. Uh, unlike now where you hide under capitalism uh, to make money, and display your ill-gotten wealth, traditional society will question where you got your wealth from. And if they question you, and you cannot find a logical answer for the display of that wealth, you are ostracized. You know, so there were sanctions in society, you know, based on the values of society. So what South Korea has done with Simul Dong is actually what we used to have in the past in our own society, which we must go back to study. What we need to do now is just to study how um, uh, South Korea um, articulated it and turned it into a model of development. We have not done our own. We have not studied what we have lost, what we can regain, what we can rebuild to develop a development paradigm, which we also give a name to. And it's it's possible. In, in Western Nigeria now, you have the Don Commission, Development Agenda for Western Nigeria. Uh, I partner with them as um, as, as, as one of the advisors. And they have done a lot. But we are going to come to that situation in which we will also go back into society, develop this model that we are talking about, and sell it gradually. It's going to take some time and it's going to be resisted. But um, for us to make quick and adequate progress, sustainable progress, because that's important. You have to be able to sustain it. We have to look at society all over again, look at their past, 
look at their future, look at those structures that got society to where it is now, uh, look at what we have to remove, look at what we have to replace them, then educate people. Because Simul Nung also went on with education. You know, it's, it's going to be a gradual process, but uh, the day we decide that we have had enough of this rat race, that is the day we are going to start to create that development approach you are talking about. But right now, everybody wants to go to America, everybody wants to go to Europe, everybody wants to be rich, not tomorrow, but like yesterday. So um, that rat race must first of all uh, stop. And how do we stop the rat race? Is by developing education that talks to people. The education that we have now doesn't talk to anybody. It's just a means to acquire a certificate, which is a really very unfortunate. It doesn't talk to anybody. You know, it's not our education. We don't own it. So until we begin to look at society all over again, we say, look, let us sit down. So it's not every time that we must convene a constitutional meeting or political meeting. Let us also constitute meetings that will try to understand society and then help create new building blocks from our understanding of the past, of the present, and of the future. That is critical to human progress in this part of the world. I can tell you from, um, based on my study, based on the people that I've uh, interviewed, because I continuously do this, um, a lot of Nigerians are getting fed up of this rat race, you call it. And when you see a lot of people getting fed up of things like this, uh, it means that it's a time for change. But the change uh, is going to happen maybe in, in different phases and in different level. Now, I told you that I have a, another version of this podcast in my language, which is about uh, Asian people, no? Try to look at Asian culture, our origin, what we do, what we like, what we don't like, what we forbid, and what are the core value of, of us as a people. One of the things I see among the Asian people is that there is natural entrepreneurship. Let me take Uromi, for example, because I'm from Uromi. In Uromi, I've interviewed some people there. Of course, I know this because that is where I grew up before I came to, to Europe. When you are an, a young adult, of course, when you, are, when you are growing up, you follow your father to your farm because most Uromi people, most Asian people are farmers. Now, when you get to a certain stage, that maybe you are not going to school, you must be learning work. There is nothing in between. You are either going to school or learning work. What that means is that it is going to be very difficult now to find a lot of armed robbers on the streets. But that has been broken now. And in Nuromi, like in many other parts of Nigeria, people are scared because the culture has been broken. The value system have been broken. And this brings me to what you were saying before, referring to the Japan, uh, to the Korean studies of trying to understand their society. Because that really is what we must do. Because even at a global level, a lot of people are disoriented. Because this false idea of capitalism is not solving the problem. People just don't need to only eat to work. We need to find 
more value for our existence. If this is the case, say maybe Nigerians are looking for the solution. Do we need to expect the government to do this study? Or is it a job for individual Nigeria? Okay, not every Nigeria again, but people who are enlightened to go ahead and take up this job as their responsibility. Let me understand that. Well, the, the, the government is part of our problem. Um, we, we, we have more, had more than enough wrong people in government. And why good people are shying away from, from government is um, or getting involved in politics is because, you know, uh, those who ended up in government over time have always been people whose values are in sharp contrast with the majority of the people. Yeah, they go, they tell you they go into government to represent the people. But uh, what we have seen so far is that uh, it's also a competition of my, my thief is better than your thief, uh, which uh, the more money you steal on behalf of your people, uh, the more the cheap tenancy, um titles they will confer on you. So, so it's uh, uh, people with wrong values who are now uh, populating government. And so they no longer serve as uh, good examples to generations of Nigerians. So um, unlike in the 60s, 70s, when government would uh, establish commissions of inquiry or this inquiry or that to move society forward, things like that are no longer happening. Um, it's more about politics, 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 politics. Uh, and that's why we have left undone a lot of things, especially uh, how to understand society and how to help society to shape its own direction. So um, I, I, I am not so optimistic about government playing this role. Uh, it would take the development of certain think tanks by the people. Uh, and of course, uh, to do that, you must also bring together people of like minds. Because if you say our goal is to develop society, take it in a different direction, you will find within the group people who are trying to use that same group for political purposes. And that's why they were there in the first place. So uh, many of the NGOs that we used to have have also uh, somersaulted because they, they diverged in different directions uh, to making money or to go to into Western values and interests. And so they also are no longer important. But ultimately, society will get to that level because if you read the history of different countries, you will discover that at some point in time, some people just decided to move their society forward to say, no, enough is enough. Um, we are getting there now. Uh, unfortunately, we, you mentioned about Nigerians saying enough is enough, they are tired of what is happening, but Nigerians are the problems of Nigeria. Um, uh, uh, a large percentage of Nigerians are complaining, but they don't want the, the structures that we have now to crumble uh, because it is in your interest for our policemen to be malleable, to be corruptible, because if you run into certain negative things, you are able to bribe the policeman and then go home. 
So it is always in the interest of Nigerians for the policeman to be corrupt and for the system to be corrupt because that is the only way you can get out of scrapes. That is the only way you can make adequate money. And so um, Nigerians, yes, they complain, but I can assure you that they are the problems of, of this country. Um, we will need to, well, like, like uh, Napoleon Bonaparte did in France, I have advocated through series of radio talks and lectures to say, okay, now we have this older generation uh, that is like an ossified structure. You can't bend it any longer. Okay, if that is the problem, then let us start building a new generation like Napoleon did in France. What he did was, okay, left the ones, went to the primary schools, to the basics, to begin to build new French people, new French orientation, new French culture. So why don't we go back to the basics, start with our nursery schools, our primary schools, give them new orientation. And I've also advocated that history uh, be one of the tools that we are going to use to rebuild society. And I'm happy to tell you that both Oyo State and Ekiti State have now introduced history at the elementary levels, which means you are trying to build a new sense of history, a new sense of identity, a new orientation among the younger generation to tell them, this is who you are. This is where you are coming from. This is the direction we want you to take. And this is ultimately where your country is going to arrive at. By the time you take it from that level, and I hope it goes beyond your state and Ekiti state now, which is part of the development problem we also have in Nigeria, we, we should agree. Because if you do it only in Oyo and Ekiti, and it's not done elsewhere, we are yet to satisfy that preconditions for a takeoff. For us to take off, we must be on the same page. Even if there are some people not on the same page, there must be few and insignificant. But for us to move forward, we must create a playing ground that is level and that is open to everybody and in which everybody identifies with what we are doing. And elsewhere too, I have also adopt, uh, advocated for the adoption of a grand strategy. Nigeria has no grand strategy. Government will do this one in New York State, will do another one in Lagos, do another one at the federal level. So what we have here is like a Tower of Babel. Nigeria is the new Tower of Babel. You know, uh, we no longer understand what we are doing. We no longer stand each other or one another and everything is just, been done anyhow. But if you create a grand strategy, if you if you go and read uh, the history of the Chinese, yes, they have changed grand strategies over time. Israel has a grand strategy. America has a grand strategy. Britain has a grand strategy. Nigeria doesn't have a grand strategy. And that grand strategy must be constructed within values, orientations, sense of mission, sense of direction. And if you don't construct this, of course, just do things anyhow. Today, the grand strategy of China is a peaceful rising. That's the grand strategy. They have moved over time from one grand strategy to other until they have now said, look, our own is peaceful rising, whether you are 
Absolutely important. The, <laughs> the, the question of the growth strategy, of course, we are talking of plan now, uh, having a, a project for the nation. No? This is very mm -hmm. important. So I wanted to spend some new, few time there referring to the Chinese uh, growth strategy, like you were saying, and maybe what Nigeria could do also try to shape this because you know it's about goal you need to have a destination where you are going currently speaking if you ask nigeria politicians the leaders i don't think they have a clear objective because the, the purpose of having a clear objective is that everything must be working towards that other than yeah. that you are just burning energy just burning burning it is useless so please help me with that say something about that grand strategy well, grand strategy is um, using uh, everything that you have to move in a direction that will sustain that will sustain your country. Uh, be it the human resources, the geography, the um, capacity of the people to do whatever they wanted to achieve, the military, everything. You throw everything into your grand strategy. And that is what China has done. We used to know China as a poverty country, uh, stricken country in the 70s. People were hungry. We saw hunger on television. But now China is uh, affluent, affluent enough to even buy up uh, American corporations and invest in the American economy and give loans to African countries. How did China arrive at that? Uh, we used to know China as a communist country. You know, so how 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 did they come to this? It was it took the the uh, rulers of of China to recognize the need of uh, of a grand strategy that would articulate and aggregate resources for their people wherever they could get it from. And so right now, um, rather than I mean, because there was a time uh, China adopted the, the policy of two-line two binding. Two-line binding means, oh, wherever Russia was going, they would follow. In fact, there was a time that Chairman uh, 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 Mao told uh, Nikita Khrushchev that in the event of a war with the United States, he was ready to give six million soldiers to the Soviet Union. And Khrushchev laughed and said, Six million soldiers, America will wear them out within within one minute. I mean, because if you use that kind of bomb that can wipe out such population, we do so. So a time then came that uh, there was this Sino-Soviet split in which China decided to go on its own to say, Russia, go your way, I will go my way. And ever since that time, uh, China had been adopting grand strategies to favor its own national development. So the current grand strategy they are using now is what they have called peaceful rising. Peaceful rising in the sense that we are no longer making enemies. Whether it is the United States or it's Africa, it's Russia, it's everybody, and we get resources to make sure that our people become comfortable, that's where we are going. So, as you are shouting that, oh, Sudan is uh, maltreating its own people, it doesn't concern China. What concerns China is what I can get from my people if you want to kill yourself. And you can see the road, the road initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative. 
moving from different parts of Europe into Africa. That's the kind of grand strategy because they have looked at it and said, well, um, how can we leverage on what we have to actually make enough resources available to our people? In the 70s, 80s, Chinese will go out and settle down uh, in other countries. If you go to China now, the younger people are not as enamored of traveling outside the country and staying outside of the country as in the past. Chinese children will go out and come back. Nigerians will go out and you are visiting visa for one week. You are looking for how to stay in that country forever. You know, how do we create a Nigeria in which once you spend one week outside your country, you are anxious to go back home? It is by creating that grand strategy understanding how to leverage on our geography, on our resources, on our people, you know, to make sure that we develop this forward-looking approach that will make life comfortable for the people, that will make the country stronger. Um, it, it, it has to come as a plan. Um, you know, in Nigeria, once you do a brand new road, that is when Water Corporation will remember that oh, they have to cut the road to lay a pipe somewhere. No, all these things must have been within a plan. Our soldiers cannot be at the war front and they will start worrying about the cookies of their children back home. No, there has to be a grand strategy to take care of all those things. We cannot all be sleeping and policemen are out there in the middle of the night patrolling. And once, you, once they are killed, the following week, you tell them to move out their, their family to move out of the barracks. No, the grand strategy will have to take care of that. And of course, look at Cuba. Cuba is training medical doctors, but the medical doctors are also doing wonderful jobs all over the world. And once they finish their job, they go back home. But what is happening to our own medical doctors? We train them, they leave. It's because there is no grand strategy, there is no sense of purpose, no sense of direction, no sense of mission. So, Let's create a grand strategy that in which you put everything within the crucible. You understand the direction in which we are headed. Then, of course, we, we, we would have satisfied that preconditions for a takeoff. Thank you so much for that. And, and this right now, uh, because of course I'm going to be asking you about the potential that we have. And in this case, of course, I'm not looking at only the Nigeria government. I'm looking at the Nigeria people, the resources, the geography. The composition of who we are because for example somebody might think ah, what is there to defend in nigeria that is everything to defend in nigeria so the nigerian people have everything to defend mm. the population of nigeria is a resources yes our land our geography is a resources our position in the world is a resources so we have everything to defend even our history is a resources so we cannot leave it to those uh, four people in Naso Rock that, it is, that Nigeria belongs to them. No, Nigeria belongs to all of us. That means building Nigeria requires the effort of all of us. So we must ask ourselves, what can I do to make Nigeria a better place? Because if we expect just Buhari to fix Nigeria, even if Buhari were to live for 1,000 years, he cannot do it. But if we require all Nigeria to participate in it, then it will take much faster and easier for us. For example, you see, 
talking of what Nigeria could be in the world, Nigeria are used to the saying, used to the saying that we are the giant of Africa. What if we were to build on that? That say because really we can be the giant of Africa. We have the resources to be able to do that. We have the people to be able to do that. Because it take a it take number to be able to play in the world that we are living today. If you are just four or five people, you cannot do it. So I want you to speak to the potential that we have in Nigeria in terms of what can what that can do in our development. Yeah, Nigeria is one huge untapped potential. And it was not like that before. It wasn't like that because um, as we were growing up, especially my generation, as we were growing up, we, we had this sense of inclusion. Um, uh, we all went to our was cruise in those days. That's what they used to call it. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, when you schooled in Ekiti or you schooled in Ekitimodu, which is my hometown, you don't feel alienated. You don't feel excluded from the scheme of things. We had this sense of inclusion. And so we, we had shared experiences, you know, and we, we didn't feel inferior whether you schooled in Ilef or you schooled in uh, anywhere in the West. You didn't feel inferior to anybody because that was the way we were all trained. We used the same books, we sang the same songs, we had the same sense of identity, we had this sense of the same inclusiveness, and, and our parents also felt the same way. Where the problem with Nigeria started was apparently after the infusion of petrodollar into the economy and everybody started moving out of the, uh, uh, the countryside into the cities to create uh, a, new, a new existence and a new consumption pattern. It is consumption that began to cause these problems. With the Doji Award of 1974, with petrol money in the economy, um, people began to look for 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 white collar jobs and that began to create that sense of distinction in society and with that sense of distinction uh, you also began to feel more alienation based on religion based on ethnicity uh, in those days when people played on the field of soccer we didn't want to know where you came from but now if you select people for green goods, they want to see, okay, how many Igbo, how many Yoruba, how many Aousa. Well, for us in those days, we didn't care. In fact, um, we, we were even adopting names of people we didn't know, <laughs> you know. Once they played very well, you become that in your own school, you know, whether it was Igbo or Aousa or anything. Haruna Ilerika, we didn't know where he came from, you know. I mean, so this why they things. Uh, today now, there is so much acute sense of alienation. Why do you want to die for Nigeria? Oh, when oh, uh, people from your ethnic group are being alienated or uh, all offices in the Federation are being monopolized by some people. And so people no longer feel that sense of inclusiveness. It's now the politics of exclusion. That's what is killing Nigeria. So a time must come when 
inclusiveness becomes part of the grand strategy. Without that inclusiveness, all the potentials we have will, will come to none. All. Because why do I want to die for Nigeria? Why do I want to establish businesses? I mean, in the economic history I teach, I teach um, my students about the tax holidays that Awolowo uh, introduced in the Western region. Eventually, the federal government of Nigeria in those days also in, introduced it. Awolowo wanted to um, industrialize Western region at a fast space. So he encouraged foreign capital to come in, even local capital also. And he gave them tax holidays to say, well, if you bring this your industry, we won't uh, be taxing you until after five years. We want you to stabilize, we want you to grow, we want you to give our children job. By the time you give them tax holidays for five years, they are also happy to come and they are also happy to make their profits and invest that profit. You know, I remember I went to my state, I wanted to start a school and then um, the first thing I did was to start building a fence around the piece of land. And the very morning I started the fence and it came from the local government that I must come and pay for the fence. I must pay tax on the fence. I said, I have not made any profit here yet. Now you are driving me away with the tax. So by the time I did two coaches for the first me, I just left to say, why do I need all this profit? So if I'm starting a school, why don't you give me a tax holiday for five years? I'm developing my hometown. I'm going to develop jobs for people. I'm going to create, you know, things for, for, for the community. And so it's that lack of understanding of how society should move. That is killing us. So we have the resources, mineral resources, uh, human resources, untapped resources, they are there. But for as long as you put people in governments who don't understand how society should be wired and how they should be motivated and encouraged, it will continue to be every man for himself and God for us all, which is the doctrine, uh, it's the philosophy uh, in society now. It's every man for himself. With that, we can't, we can't move forward. Okay. Now, let's look at your students, because you're a senior lecturer. Yeah. So let's look at your students. What do they feel about this uh, problem of underdevelopment in Nigeria? I mean, if you let, were to sample opinion of them, tell me their feeling of what can be the solution to Nigeria. Well, <laughs> it's a generational issue, because... Um, I joined the UI in 1993, and things were still relatively okay. And as part of my instruction in my development class, because I teach a course, History 403, Development, Concepts and Realities in the Third World. And they have been raising this issue because, you know, um, younger folks see things quickly than we older ones, because they, they also have their expectations. They have their fears, they have their aspirations. So they have been questioning me since that 1993 set to say, hey, do you think the way things are going that we can recover from this? Of course, for those of us who grew up in the 70s, in the heady days of petrodollars, we, uh, we, we saw the world differently. 
uh, consumption was good. And even by the times we got into the university in the 80s, things were still okay. You got local government uh, bursary, you got state bursary, you got federal government bursary. And uh, the, the week you got your bursary, you just buy a ticket to London to go and enjoy your weekend in London. You didn't need a visa. Uh, in effect, those days, there are so many of our colleagues who leave for London Monday, uh, uh, Friday evening and come back. Uh, by Monday morning, they are in class with you. So life was good. So we saw the world differently. We saw life differently. And so when the students began to ask, I said, well, from my experience of Nigeria, we have the resources, we have the capacity. I'm sure we will recover. And then things continued. And we didn't recover. Not only didn't we recover, things also started getting worse. And so these questions continue to persist in my class to say, oh God, this issue of development, this issue of development. And looking at the trajectory of things, I also um, could no longer be that optimistic about the way things were going. So um, when they questioned me about this issue and their desire to migrate out of the country, what would I say? Why tell them that no, Nigeria will be okay? There were no indications to that effect. So um, from 1998 upwards, we began to witness many of our students leaving. Uh, and so we have also experienced people in their final years, uh, even uh, final semester or final year leaving once they got an opportunity and abandoning their degrees. That's how bad things have become. It's not only in Ibadan, alone, all over the country. Uh, ASU has been on strike since February now. Uh, I was talking to some of my colleagues yesterday and they said, yeah, they knew some of the students who had come to take their transcripts and had left. So what do you want to say? You know, um, if you, like, like they say in Yoruba cosmology, if you, go to commiserate with somebody uh, whose uh, mother was killed by killed and eaten up by a tiger. What precisely do you want to say to him or her? To say, oh, sorry, I had the same experience. That was the same way my mother was eaten by a tiger. No, no. So if you don't have the experience of what this younger generation is going through, then of course you are not in a position to advise. And that's what they say about in those days when we were growing up, if you wanted to sell a medicine to an Hausa man and you tell him it kills this, it kills that, the Hausa man in those days will ask you, okay, all these things you are talking about, has it happened to you before? If you say no, that's a minus. You say, okay, if it has happened to you, have you taken this medicine before and it works? And you say no, it, uh, you have never taken it before. Say, so why are you selling it? In the same way in which uh, it's become very difficult to preach to this younger generation to say, well, Nigeria would be good with, and then they are in society, they see people who have been outside, who have graduated for five, 10 years, they are, they are no job. What do you want to tell them? So the generation is disillusioned, they are angry, they are fed up, and they are living in droves. And for any country in which its future, that is the younger generation which is supposed to constitute its future, is abandoning the country. 
in such a large number, then there's a, there's a problem solved, which must be addressed very quickly. So yeah, our students are disillusioned, just like everybody. Our lecturers are disillusioned, policemen are disillusioned, soldiers are disillusioned, everybody is disillusioned. And so we must all get up and find an answer to this issue. Thank you so much for that. Now, the reason we must uh, get up and find an answer to the issue is that this is the only country we can actually effectively call our home. Yes. You see, I live in Italy. A lot of Nigerians are here. Not all of them, but some of them actually are on the streets. They have no home. Some of them are working very hard in different type of factories. And some of them don't even have paper to start, to start working. So life also in the diaspora is very hard sometimes. Okay, I'm not talking of those who go around and start doing illegal things, and maybe tomorrow you see with a lot of money throwing around. But that is not the reality in many parts of the diaspora. Life here, the energy that the Nigerians are putting into work to be able to get out something here, if it is vested at home, a lot of things will change. Yes. So what I'm trying to look at now is that as a lecturer on development, do you think it is possible that people, Nigerians in Nigeria, or even those abroad, can actually look at the problems that we have today as opportunity and look for a way to turn it around? You think we can possibly make miracle in this situation? Yes, uh, even in very bad situations, you must find opportunities in those kind of situations. That's what gives us hope as humans. Um, we must not dwell on our victimhood. And that's what Nigerians have going for them. Uh, if, we, if we had also given up like everybody, Nigeria would be in shambles now. But simply because we stay here, we see opportunities. Yes, we, we, we find tribulations also, but we see opportunities and we grab those opportunities. Um, people are still building houses. People are still even buying brand new cars. People are still sending children to school. People who work here and who have opportunities here are still sending children abroad without stealing money. To school abroad without stealing money. So yes, we can still leverage on our resources, our opportunities to, to find solutions to this problem. But the only thing is that we must do it in a sustainable way that would give more opportunities to more people. Um, if I said, okay, uh, people are still making money, that's a bit, people will ask you, oh, that's, that's a few out of the large population of 200 million people, yes. But what we should um, be looking forward to now is how to create more opportunities for more people so that a large percentage of the 200 million people would conveniently say, yes, I am doing well. But we cannot do that until we all come to, well, not, not all, um, a, an important segment of society will come together and say, let us chart path for this country. If we don't chart that path, it will be 200 million people doing 200 million different things. And then of course, like I said, uh, there, there won't be any hope out of that. So yeah, uh, we look for opportunities within the country to uh, make do with whatever we can get. 
and people are surviving. Some are doing very well, but don't let's leave it to chance. What we are doing now is leaving it to chance. Let us articulate development. Let us articulate the way out of these problems. Let us ensure that we develop sustainability. It's not for five years, this country is doing well, another government comes in in five years, destroy things, we start all over again, start rebuilding. No, let us look for measures, approaches, strategies that will create sustainable development. That is what we must be looking for now. Thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate that. Now, what would be your concluding statement here, your, your final thought uh, in terms of how to um, resolve the problem we have in Nigeria in terms of uh, development? Please go. Well, um, I, I think um, we, we should start playing with ideas. Uh, right now, people are much more into themselves, um, trying to survive um, existentialist issues, existentialist problems at home, abroad, everywhere. But let us spare a thought for ideas. Let us identify groups that we can belong to. Yeah, hometown associations are good, but of course it's usually more designed for festival, for uh, conviviality, camaraderie, esprit de corps. Let's begin to think about development. Well, in, in my hometown now, uh, there is the Petumodu Development Forum, which surprisingly within one year has done so much, brought people together so much and focused towards development. Uh, this one is different from the old hometown associations we used to have. Oh, the old hometown associations will send people to school, which was good, will come home for festival. But this one is basically totally, absolutely fo focused on development. Development like training, development like ensuring that uh, uh, business ventures are raised. In fact, they are even bringing money together now to develop their own community bank because uh, the only bank we used to have in the town um, has closed shop because people did not have enough to save in the bank. So the bank was no longer sustainable. So now people are coming together to say, okay, if the business people are taking their bank, let's develop our bank, which is which is what is what. And that takes us back to the small type of thing in South Korea. So it's going to, development is going to be from the grassroots. It's going to come up. So let us uh, not focus on Lagos and the Badaindu. Let us go back to our communities and start this movement. It's not, it's not the society, it has to be a movement. And with that movement, I am sure that Nigerians will begin to understand that we can actually ignore the government. The government will become anachronistic. It happened in the history of the United States. People began to move beyond the government. And so it was the government that was running after the people. I foresee a situation in Nigeria in which government will become very anachronistic and people will ignore the government and then development will be about people, people will be about development. That is when government will come and beg us for a buy-in. So let's let's ignore government. Thank you, Professor Adesina. It has been a pleasure on my part. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much.
Thank you for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead A14. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.